0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, Courtney Nash, former chair of O'Reilly Security Conference, speaks with Jay Jacobs, senior data scientist at BitSight. Jay will also be offering a two-day training course on data analysis and machine learning for cybersecurity at the upcoming O'Reilly Security Conference, October 30th to November 1st in New York. In this podcast episode, they'll be talking about the limitations of convenient data simple steps to begin analyzing security data, and considerations for effective data visualization. Enjoy the episode. All right, welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast, Jay.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: It's a pleasure. I want to start with the same thing I ask everyone, uh, because I think it's really, it's really informative to see the different pathways that people take into security. Uh, so how, how did you get into this gig?
1: Oh boy, got to go back quite a few years. Uh, growing up, my my father worked for IBM, and so he would bring home equipment and all sorts of weird things that I'd be able to take apart and and play around with. And we got our first PC in 1981, so it does go back quite a few years. And um, I immediately loved it. You know, this is back in the days. I think 300 baud modems were the the norm.
0: Nice. And uh,
1: so I started, you know, playing around with it and found uh, BBSs and Uh, got into that whole world. And then I figured out how some of the BBSs worked and ways to circumvent some of their, uh, um, I don't know, practices would be the word. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it just progressed from there. And I got really interested in programming. And um, as a young adult, I wasn't actually working with computers. I was um, bouncing around doing various other things, but I always kept a toe in computers. And then late 20s, I, I started to get into computers as a real job. And uh, by the late 90s, late 1990s, I was doing uh, pen testing. And that wasn't really a term back then. So we yeah. were calling it, you know, tiger teaming and things like that. And it was incredibly immature uh, industry at that point. Um, but from there, I was just completely hooked on security. And, you know, it always starts out to to break things. Um, and then I just found it was so much more of a challenge to actually prevent other people from breaking things. And that that has just had me hooked ever since. And so I've spent quite a bit of time focusing on things like cryptography. For a while, I thought cryptography was going to save everything because we could encrypt our data and it was perfectly secure. And uh, come to find out that oh, the math man, was not Oh, those days are the... long gone, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they were never here. I was just, uh, uh, you know, wrong. We were young myself. and hopeful. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the thing you brought up, is interesting that... that early introduction to from your parents to discovering the bbs thing like i feel like that's such a similar shared narrative to so many other people i've talked to it's fascinating but the the piece you mentioned about how more how much more interesting it is to counter the breakers yeah like talk to me about a little bit more about what i mean was there one thing that peaked that switch for you or i mean can you put a finger on it
1: Um, You know, back back in the the 90s um, and even the early 2000s uh, there and there still is this notion, the notion of script kitties and just these people that were able to grab some type of tool and execute it and do just a tremendous amount of damage without being aware or skilled or talented in any way and that was very distressing to me that there was this ability to do so much damage with so little knowledge and so the the opposite side was to try and stop not only the the script kiddies and the and the small mistakes like that that had huge impact but just everybody I mean how do we actually manage this incredibly complex infrastructure of systems in such a way that we can do it securely and it's a huge challenge
0: so When you you mentioned massive, you know, sort of infrastructure from a systems level, Mm -hmm. you have managed to take the tact of of looking at that from a really data-driven perspective, you know, across your career. Yeah. uh, Which makes sense to me, but maybe talk to me a little bit about that transition for you as well, or where you really started to approach these kinds of problems from a data-driven perspective.
1: Yeah, I would say it happened around 2008, 2009 timeframe where I, I realized that, um, cryptography was not going to solve all of our security problems, and uh, I started looking around trying to figure out how do we how do we actually figure out what's going wrong? How do we figure out what's going wrong so we can figure out what to, what to do right? And that got me interested in this problem of how do we learn about a complex environment? And that's a really really loaded question. How do we learn about a complex environment? And it comes down to you know this battle between intuition versus uh, whatever you call data analysis, algorithms, or computing, or analytics or whatever. So it says intuition versus analytics. We've been a very intuitively driven uh, industry. You know, anybody working in security, you've got this. Some people call it faith based, uh, you know, but there's a lot of intuition. We've got a heavy reliance on it. And the challenge with that is in a complex environment, our intuition can be easily tricked and fooled. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not valuable. There's a huge value in intuition and expertise in our industry. But at the same time, if we really want to understand what's going on, we have to take a step back and actually start to collect data and make sense of that data. And that challenge really is what drove me into statistics and some of the other uh, data science areas.
0: It's funny when you say you know, how do you how do you try to make sense of a how do you try to st- make sense of a complex system? And and I'm I'm tr- I'm smirking. You can't see me. It's a podcast. <laughs> Um, because I feel like there's this whole field out there in the world of which I was once a member called, you know, research science. Right. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. so the complex system that I've always been obsessed with is the brain. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time I was a, a PhD candidate in neuroscience and I ran away to go work for this tiny little bookstore online bookstore in Seattle in about nineteen ninety eight. But prior to that, um, you know, I spent my time trying to figure out how to study the brain. And, it, and, and so part of me is like, how, how is this so revolutionary? <laughs> how is this a revolutionary thing to be talking about, like, essentially fundamental science research in the context of all the data we have uh, for, you know, security professionals? Yeah. Yeah, that's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I'm going to make you answer it anyways.
1: (laughs) Sure. Well, it's hard because I, I don't know the answer and I have pet theories and stuff like that, but I have no idea. We've never tested it. Right. But my theory is that in security, we've had to build most everything from scratch. Um, you know, we've had to build all of our, all of the systems from scratch, you know, we're programming from scratch, we're building web applications from scratch, everything we're doing is from scratch. And there, there's a lot of that things that we've done in IT in general, that we, we've had to invent a new wheel. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to discovering about complex systems, we don't think, hey, there's another whole field that we can learn from in in research science, right? Um, I think that the tendency is to think, well, how do we develop something new here to solve this new problem? Mm. But I think there's a a gap missing that it's not a new problem to learn from a complex system.
0: Yeah, interesting. So a bit of a not invented here syndrome, I guess yeah so to be fair doing that kind of research is not easy even very seasoned scientists you know grapple daily with how are they going to set up their experiments what kind of data are they collecting what do they make of those data how do they you know how do they you know interpret them so it's not as if to say oh i'll be a scientist and everything will be great i'll understand right so i I don't want to um i don't want to cargo cult that too much but but the one thing that i was really, you know, had found even in the scientific community, but especially, I think, outside of this, of that community is, is something I wanted to ask you about, which is essentially what I'm calling statistical literacy, um, mm-hmm. which is even as a scientist, you still had to spend a lot of time grappling with very difficult things like probability, um, and understanding error and messiness in your data. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to, you know, kind of get a sense from you. Um, how do you, how do you what are some of the primary pitfalls you've seen from people, you know, sort of in the, in, this, in the security world in particular, maybe, but when it comes to that sort of statistical literacy, the ability to have, you know, some of those fundamental concepts around dealing with data?
1: Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, I've presented, you know, various things I've researched in the past to highly skeptical audiences. And, you know, I think by our nature and security, we are supposed to be skeptical. right? When people say, no, 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 we got it secured. It's OK. You know, right. there's valid reason to be skeptical of that sort of thing. And, and I think that that also plays over into research. And, and there's there's some truth to that as well. So but the the problem with the uh, statistical literacy, it's a tough thing to roll off the tongue Um, sorry about that there's a couple of things so as people are consuming um there's a challenge in thinking that what's the saying perfect is the enemy of good right um and and it's a challenge where people look at research and find a flaw and throw it out because there is a flaw
0: throw the whole Uh, thing
1: out the whole thing out right because it's not perfect it's not you know, and in, in security, we have a, a very perfect mindset. We need to have perfect security. You know, the attacker only needs to find one problem. And so we've got this mindset that we have to be, we have to focus on being perfect. And so the challenge, though, is that when you find a flaw in research, it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole thing should be thrown out. Uh, and as actually, it's often the, the opposite. That It's almost impossible to find any research that is perfect. And so to, to wait for perfect research, it means that you're you're waiting a long time and not learning anything in the meantime.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. So but that's a messy problem, right? So how does somebody without that kind of research background then approach evaluating non you know non perfect research? How do you then look at something and, and and get a sense of what is useful or meaningful or, or or you know practical for you from from that research?
1: It's it's a really hard thing because when you're when people are producing research or in order to um, produce research that helps people understand the context of the research, how much it, is, how trustworthy is it, uh, you know, what are the assumptions in there and the limitations and the data collection and all that stuff. In order to communicate that in research, it takes a lot of effort. I mean, just to, if you read most of the papers, most of the papers are focused on the methodology and describing right. where the data comes from and what it's doing. And so without that, you know, and, and when we're talking about the security industry, most of the, the popular research is coming from vendors and, uh, you know, people using this as a marketing tool, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that there's, there, it's a slightly different goal, right? Yeah. And so the, the problem is that this research doesn't have the real estate to go into that level of detail. They can't dive into all of the methodology and all the nuances and assumptions and limitations and all of that because no one will read it. You know, it won't be popular research. It'll right. be kind it's not of popular anymore. Boring research to read. Well, it so, strikes I mean, me oh, sorry. The, I was just gonna say that's just one of the main challenges I think with a lot of the research in our industry.
0: Well, it strikes me that even more so than than standard scientific research, it's not is it is it ever reproduced?
1: No, I mean, that's I mean, that's a huge problem everywhere within science, um, but specifically in security, because a lot of this research is done on data that nobody wants to share.
0: Right. And you it's, and it's um, I, I want to talk about that a little bit, too. Not only is it data that no one wants to share, but but that data is it's different than the kind of data you would collect in a, in a standard scientific study. Right. I mean, you have yeah. you have very unusual samples.
1: Right? right. yeah, it's convenient data. It's data that we can get our hands on. and right. so you know and, and you see that sometimes in medicine where people will try to study a disease and so they, they grab the, the patients with that disease and the hospital that they work in or something like that. And there's there's some benefits to doing that. Obviously that the data collection is pretty easy because you get the data that you can get. Um, but at the same time there's limitations. it may not be representative of the larger population and things like that. So I mean right away, for most of the research in security, we're dealing with this convenient data problem.
0: So, uh, how do you tackle
1: that? Uh, multiple studies, I think, is the, the only way. So, you know, back when, we were, when I was working on the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, we tried to tackle that by diversifying the sources of data. Um, and so, you know, the report started out with just the Verizon cases. And then we started adding, you know, a couple of partners here and there. And we got up to, boy, 70 partners uh, when I was participating last year. And what that does, though, is every, every individual uh, contributor has their own convenient sample, right? They're, they're getting the data that they can get access to. And when they're grabbing that data, they've got their own biases and limitations and problems and, and areas of focus. You know, like law enforcement had a lot of data on the, the attacker. they would capture a lot of data on that and, and not much on the actual victim or, or what actually happened. And then you get certs that are very focused on what happened and a little less on who's, who actually did this uh, type of thing. So you get all these biases and inherent problems with each data set. But when you combine them, that's where you start to see the strength, because now all of these biases start to, to level out and, and even off a little bit. And you still have problems, and you can still absolutely have problems with representativeness. But the, uh, this is one of the ways to combat it.
0: I want to flip things over a little bit and talk about um, people dealing with data from their own organizations. Um, How they use those data, how they interpret those data. So it's a bit of Mm a a different take on statistical literacy. But I mean, do you think the challenges are similar to, you know, there's interpreting research and other people's data, and then you have this seemingly endless flood of data from your own organization, um, yeah. Are the challenges similar? Like, what are you seeing people struggle with when it comes to dealing with the data they have from their own organization and using that in a meaningful way?
1: I think that getting back to that literacy problem when talking about statistics is a, a big problem because um, people will put more more faith in the data than they should. I think in a lot of cases.
0: What do you mean? Like, what's an example of that?
1: So, for an example, like if you're if you're tracking something over time. Um, you know, I don't know, like the number of uh, password reset calls to the help desk or something or the number of malware infections remediated. And you see every every single data sample is going to have natural fluctuations. And so let's say, you know, 40, 40 percent of the calls one month were for this particular topic. And the next month it was 45 percent. Uh, that change may not be important that may just be random fluctuation. And I don't know how many times I would be sitting in an organization and someone would say, oh, I went from 40 to 45 percent. That's a 5 percent increase. That's, you know, why did it go up when actually the fact is it's just random noise or, or it could be attributed to random noise. Right. So it's a it's a challenge, I think, for for people not familiar with these concepts of sample size and confidence intervals to to work with data and try to accept the fact that there is random noise and to account for that.
0: What do you think of some of the more shiny things happening um, on that front these days, like anomaly detection, that kind of way of trying to deal with
1: <laughs> time you're series
0: gonna, kinds of data?
1: Yeah, you're going to draw me into anomaly detection. <laughs> um, it's, uh, so you're talking more about the, some of the m- machine learning type things, and that's, that's definitely the, um, the sexy thing in security in most areas actually right now is, yeah. is dealing with machine learning. The, the main problem is that there's two big fields of machine learning, and that's supervised versus unsupervised. And in supervised, you have something that you're tracking to. You have an outcome that you can measure and see what contributed to that outcome. Uh, you know, for example... Um, If you're if you're looking at causes of of breaches, you have a set of companies that have experienced a breach, you know, and you can look at what that company is doing or have other input data to try and understand what contributes to a breach. You've got a supervised problem and unsupervised, which is what anomaly detection is, is unsupervised. And so what that means is that you've just got a bunch of data, essentially network data, for example, and you're just looking in there for anomalies like you don't have anything to compare it to. And so the problem, though, with security and anomaly detection is that an anomaly does not mean a bad security event. It means something is weird. You know, it could have been a, a batch job that runs once a month, or someone had a report to want, run, or someone had to suck down a bunch of data, or you know, just something. Any sort of an anomaly can trigger that. And the the big problem is that you cannot evaluate a false positive because you have nothing to measure it against. You you have no idea how effective anomaly detection is unless you can go through and say. This one was right, that one was wrong, this one was wrong, this one was right. And that's a very difficult thing to do. As opposed to supervised learning, we can say, we can actually run some training algorithms and say, this is correct, you know, 99% of the time or 80% or whatever it is. So it's very difficult with anomaly detection to say, is this working or not?
0: Right. So, you know, instead of chasing the shiny things, um, which is desirable at times, or it's tempting. Yeah. Yeah. What avenues do you recommend for folks who deal with data in you know in a security context on a daily basis? like what things should those people be focusing on um, to sort of improve their ability to you know deal with those data, interpret those data, use those in a way that's meaningful to you know to their job and the and the security of their organization?
1: So I think the first step is to just count and collect everything. Um, I think that there's a challenge where people will try to collect only the right things or the things that they think are going to be helpful. Um, And that's been a problem as I go into organizations to work with some of the data they have that they, you know, they kind of screw up on the data collection and only collect things that are that they think would be handy. uh, And they miss some things that are really helpful to analysis. And so just start out counting and collecting everything. Even things that you don't think are, are countable or collectible. You know, like when, when the DBIR started out, a lot of people didn't think that you could, uh, you know, try to put a breach, which is a series of events into a format that could be conducive to analysis. And so I think that we've got, you know, some areas that we could focus on, like pen testing, red team activity. Um, I think that these are areas just ripe for a good data collection effort.
0: Yeah, Etsy's kind of legendary with that, right? You know, their mantra is is uh, is measure everything, um, and if it moves, graph it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that
1: one before. I haven't no. heard that. That's good. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
0: Okay, so count and measure everything.
1: Yeah. And then, then so once once you start doing that, so if you're collecting all this data, just do some simple counting. You know, uh, this month I saw X number and this month I saw Y and stuff like that. Um, and then you start to move into comparison, right? So you've got this problem of this month I saw this and this month I saw that, is that a big change? And and can we talk about that change that's significant? Do we care kind of a thing? Um, and the, the other thing, a lot of people will capture metrics and not actually ask a question like, do we care if it goes up or down? Uh, that's, that's sort of a problem, uh, people collecting convenient data uh, that they collect this data and start graphing it and nobody really cares, you know. So actually that kind of goes back to a, a bigger problem with any research and that's the research question. So maybe we should have started there actually to talk about the research question.
0: Well, let's start there then.
1: So in a research question, you just want to identify what, what you want to know. Um, and the problem that we have and most of the things we do is we'll start with the data, kind of like we did in the conversation where I just said, start collecting data. The, a better thing to do is start with a question. And I, I really should have started there. But, you know, so if you're, if you're working on a red team or doing pen tests or, or whatever it is, just start with a question of, you know, how more efficient is... This versus that or how many of these activities are we coming across or, you know, I mean, whatever that question is and try to make it measurable um, and make it something cares about. Because mm-hmm. um, the problem is that when people start with data, they start graphing it and showing things that actually nobody really cares about. But it's it's data because they started with the data. They, they try to figure out what value is in that data.
0: It's super. It's satisfying, right? Look got all these data. Here's a graph. Yeah, like there is a certain satisfaction in that. I mean, I remember when I used to do research, I would have my question, but the best moment was when that stuff would start coming out, like churning out. You know, you're writing like, well, I would now you'd write Python scripts, but back when I was doing this, um, well, the first O'Reilly book that I bought was Perl. so I was writing really sexy Pearl <laughs> scripts. Um, but I was so excited when the data would start coming out. You know, and it's sort of you yeah. can get, you can almost get sort of caught up in in that piece of it, which yeah. there's not a lot of meaning there yet.
1: Yeah, no, it's certainly romantic. It's a it's a very, very passionate thing when some of these visualizations start to pop off the screen for you.
0: Yeah, so you've know, so you, you you've got to have a hypothesis or a question you want to have answered. Yeah. You, you collect the data and then you look at those data, but you may think you're getting into the really nutty part of it, right? Which is the, so now you have a question, you have some data and you're trying to answer that question. Um, yeah. That's, not always so easy. Um, no. And I would presume, you know, if you're doing this in the context of sort of security for an organization, you're not like running necessarily like regression analyses or caring about p-values, right?
1: Right. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of things can just be answered by counting and comparing. Right. You know, a lot of the questions, are, they, they come out really simple. How much have we done this month versus last month, quarter over quarter, whatever it is. You know, you just want to look for where things are and how things are changing over time.
0: So I want to get to the part um that I think is that I ran into when I I was I started working on some of the AB testing early on back in the day at Amazon um because I was working at Amazon and I had a research background and and what was fascinating to me what would ha- they're very different now obviously so I'm not trying to you know bash on Amazon because I think they they paved the way for sort of modern uh, approach to AB testing mm-hmm. in in a business you know sort of Software context. But, you know, back then what would happen is you'd run the experiment, you'd get the data, and then you'd go present those data to, you know, management. And they don't have any statistical literacy, probably. You might get lucky, but odds are they don't. And so then you've done all this hard work, you put it to them, and they still they still go by intuition. They're like, eh, yeah, but that's not really what we wanted. So... Wah, wah. <laughs>
1: Right? Yeah. Well, that's that's part of the benefit of the question up front, you know, because if you can say, hey, I want to I want to go study this question, if they say that would be interesting, you right. know, or maybe they say, oh, I don't really care. But what if they know? don't
0: like the results? Right? <laughs> what do you well, What do you do then?
1: That that is not a problem with the data.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think <laughs> that is what where it highlights that security is not just a technical or a or a you know right. a database problem. It is a human and a business problem. Very um, much. So. And so I think you know that was sort of the last thing I wanted to get to was um you know what do you recommend for people who are then. You might get to this point where you're actually doing, you know, you're collecting some of these data, you know, presenting those to people in your organization. Um, like, do you have suggestions or resources or ideas for people to get better at doing that? Because I think presenting data um, and and making a case for those things is 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 equally as important, but in sometimes just as hard as the actual, you know, work to get there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and data visualization is a, a really exploding field right now. There's so much work and research going on in that field that uh, there's there's a lot to consume there. And it's not just, you know, talking about why pie charts might be bad, it's there's a lot more nuance and detail in there. And to get right to your question, though, you have to be able to understand the audience that you're trying to communicate to because data and communicating data through visualization is just a communication medium like using words or you know other powerpoint presentation whatever it is it's just another medium of communication and so in there you've got someone encoding a message and you're putting it into this visual and then you transfer it either through a printed page or web document or whatever, and then somebody receiving that and decoding it. And that level of decoding is what you're talking about. You know, for producing something for an analyst working in a, in a SOC, we're going to have a different type of visualization with different types of things that make it easier to decode what they care about versus an executive. Yes. they are going to have a much different level uh, and willingness to work and to understand the visualization.
0: I saw a great presentation at uh, one of the other conferences I run for O'Reilly. Velocity focuses a lot on sort of high performance web, um, both front end and sort of operation side of things. Um, and the the performance engineers who are, who are obviously obsessed with making things go fast are often tasked with trying to justify the work they want to do to the executives um, because it's only been more recently that that the business side has really started to understand how like performance of web apps and things is as critical as it is. And this fellow Andrew Betts from FT Labs had this really wonderful presentation where most of the the tools for for measuring and looking at web performance are are a lot of these very waterfall charts, right? Like mm-hmm. you fire up your web page and it shows you like what stuff's loading when and where things are getting hung up, and you know it's a very technical presentation of data and um, the person who makes that tool web page test put this um, put this feature in it where while all of the waterfall stuff is running and all the numbers are turning it shows a video of the web page loading and then you can do that versus your, say your competitor and so you can mm-hmm. see all the waterfall stuff going and the, the 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 engineer would look at the waterfall and go whoa right but the the executives were responding to all of a sudden they were saying how much slower their page was loading than say their competitors
1: yeah It's a very effective visualization. Yeah,
0: I thought that was one of the most, you know, sort of magnificent ways of understanding how you need to communicate those data to the different audiences. Um, Just like you were saying
1: there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a challenge where there's three things that you try to evaluate. First is, you know, you start with that research question. And then you take that research question, you figure out how does the data that you're able to collect answer that question. And then once you start to communicate that, you try to ask yourself, does that visualization match what the data says? And does it match and answer the question, the original question being asked? And so trying to think of those three parts of that equation, that they all have to line up and explain each other and be in line. I think that that helps people then try to communicate easier.
0: Yeah, well, that's really great. So I, I want to wrap up um, the, the first question of, of every podcast is, how did you get here? Um, and the final question is, we're doing this conference, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. for security uh, at O'Reilly. And, you, you know, you're one of the program committee members. Um, my co-chair, Allison Miller from Google, when we started inviting everybody to come and join this program, we realized that we were assembling like the world's greatest security supergroup ever. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, and it struck us in a really nerdy way, um, that everybody on that program committee has these amazing superpowers. And so Mm -hmm. now everyone gets stuck with the question at the end of the podcast, which is what is your superpower?
1: Oh boy! I answered this in in chat, and I don't remember what I put. Well, I'll, um,
0: I'll tell you what we thought it was, but I think okay. you you still you can come up with your own now. But then I'll tell you what what I think was was anointed to you uh, in that in that in that Slack chat.
1: All right, do you want me to go first? Then yeah, you go first. So I think I think I remember it now because it was something like something around data being able to to extract something from data, something like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so um, Wendy Nether. Um, uh, from RCSC said that your superpower is super nice data science
1: (laughs) super nice
0: super nice yeah so so all your all all data gets tamed and tidied um and behaves itself i don't know do you agree yeah
1: if if only that were the case that (laughs) would truly be awesome
0: the data tamer well we'll see if we can come up with maybe a better a better version of that yeah Excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And this was a really enlightening conversation. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you for listening. You can reach Jay on Twitter at Jay Jacobs. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.